This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. Hello, Face the Nation podcast listeners. As we inch closer to Election Day, we wanted to get a sense of what to expect in the final days of midterm season. And for that, I spoke with Amy Walter and Jessica Taylor of the Cook Political Report for their thoughts on this last stretch of campaign 2022. Take a listen. Good morning, Cook political folks. Good to talk to you. Hello, Twitter space. This is Margaret Brennan, um, moderator Face the Nation. So I know you guys are all in the home stretch. So are we over here. Um, and it, it looks like the country's on the cusp of some pretty big political change in the next two weeks. We have 35 states about to vote who's going to represent them in the Senate. And we've, we're looking, according to CBS estimates, at the Republicans liking, likely taking control of the House. So I want to get you two experts to weigh in on exactly what Americans should be focused on here for campaign 2022. So we've got, in a repeat appearance, Editor-in-Chief Amy Walter of the Cook Political Report, along with Editor of Senators and Governors Coverage at Cook Political. That's Jessica Taylor. Jessica, good to have you join us. Thank you so much for having me. Um, let's let's start off with just a, a quick snapshot. Um, we have about 10 races to watch here at CBS that we're really closely following. Um, I want to know which ones you are most focused on. For us in the toss-up category, we've got Arizona, Georgia, Wisconsin, and Nevada. What are you thinking? Uh, you all were pretty close to what we have, but we also have Pennsylvania in toss-up still. You know, we've I shifted two rating changes in August and September as, you know, I say the Democrats, it was sort of their peak moment. They were on a little bit of a sugar high after the summer and encouraging economic news and after the jobs decision, but that has dissipated. And I've certainly noticed in conversations with Democrats these past few weeks, they're getting a little more dour. They're sort of a little more pessimistic. Um, you know, and I think in a lot of these races, they have the better candidates and candidate quality has long been an issue that we've seen here for Republicans. But the, but, you know, this morning we made a shift, we shifted Arizona also back into toss up 
this is a polling that Democrats just has a, have a completely margin of error. The Pennsylvania polling is tightening. Everything in that toss-up column that we have just seems so incredibly tight. Um, I, I still think that uh, of those, Kelly might still have a slight edge, even though we moved it. But it's enough that where we do feel like it's it really could go other either way. And in Pennsylvania, you know, it's it, we'll see how if the debate affected things. But we're, as you said, we're getting down to the to the to the bitter end here. Um, but I think that's one that Republicans are feeling better about. They're feeling better about Wisconsin. Um, and I, I've long thought that Nevada with Catherine Cortez Masto is the most vulnerable. Mm-hmm. And then I also think we are expecting to go to a runoff in Georgia for December 6th. But the question is, I, I, I had increasingly thought that that might be to decide the Senate majority. So a deja vu of 2020. But that may not be the case. If we see Republicans pick up some of these other seats on election night, it could be for, you know, the 52nd vote or something. So, Amy, I mean, how much did in, in the state of Pennsylvania, we already knew that it was tightening that race, according to CBS estimates. But how much did John Fetterman's debate performance impact things? Do we have a sense yet? That's a, such a good point. I don't know that we have a sense yet because I don't know how many, quote unquote, undecided voters actually watch. Right. I mean, the thing about debates, especially when we're talking about debates for a midterm election, not a presidential year or a presidential level debate, is that it's usually partisans who are watching it, right? People have already made up their mind who are there to cheer for one side or the other. But where undecided voters get their information is in the coverage of it, of it right? How did the local news break it down? What were they seeing when they woke up that morning if they still get a newspaper delivered or if they're <laughs> logging on to their newspaper and seeing how it was uh, portrayed. And then I think more important um, is how the candidates are using specific lines or lines of attack or ways in which they thought their opponent fumbled on an issue in advertising. Obviously, Democrats really thought they got Oz on an abortion um, issue here, arguing that you know, he wants to put decisions in the hands of local officials, including um, Doug Mastriano, who's the candidate for governor there, basically trying to do all they can. Democrats still trying to do all they can to tie Dr. Oz to the much less uh, appealing Republican candidate. But mm-hmm. at the end of the day, Margaret, I do think it's the bigger environment that is probably going to shift this race one way or the other. I I think Dr. Oz's closing in that debate really sort of summed it up, which is, do you think things are better off now? Are you feeling okay about the cost of living? Are you feeling okay about the direction that the state and the country is going in? If if you aren't, you you only have one choice. You got to vote for change. And that's going to be the issue. Well, you know, but Amy, when you and I have spoken in the past, you've talked about this being kind of an unusual dynamic for a midterm because it wasn't just the party in power facing that referendum. The issue of abortion was also on the ballot. Is it just now much more of a traditional dynamic? I think it's still on the ballot. It's just that it is not the um, it is not an equal an equal weight to the other issue Mm -hmm. of the economy and maybe a maybe a better way to think about it is this is it's sort of like you know if you are um uh in a in a 
I don't know, driving race or something. Not that I know anything about this. So I'm probably going to ruin this analogy of being in a car race. But if you're really far behind and then you get this real burst of speed and you end up close to the to the front of the pack, but there may not be enough boost in your engine to get you over the line. So I think what the issue did is it really helped to make these races incredibly competitive, keep Democrats ahead of where Joe Biden was, right? I mean, this is still the reality here for many of these Democrats is that they're still outperforming Joe Biden in these states, at least opinions about Joe Biden. And Mm -hmm. I think the reason for that is for those voters who are saying, "Eh, I'm not really happy with Biden. I don't really like how he is running the country or dealing with the economy. But I I can see in this individual race why the issue of voting for a Democrat is important. So in the state of Georgia, so so I'm taking what you're saying, Amy, but when it comes to the messaging that Democrats are focusing on right now, abortion is still very front and center in a lot. I'm thinking in yep. Georgia of Herschel Walker and these continued stories about you know, his public position on abortion, but then in his private life, things that have come up in regard to allegations from various women saying that he paid for them to have abortions. What exactly is the strategy here? Is it to try to, if, if it's not to continue to, <laughs> you know, if it's not abortion itself, is it just to alienate conservative voters and, and convince them to stay home? Is that the strategy? Je- yeah, Jess, what do you think about this? I'll let you start here. Well, I think that, you know, the enthusiasm, and you all have done a really good job there at CBS of tracking this, I will say, um, of which party is more energized to come out. And I think what it sort of um, uh, piggybacking on what Amy said, you know, the decision over the summer did help Democrats even that enthusiasm gap, but not, they narrowed it, but it's not completely the same. And I think that you're you're right, and this is a this is a conundrum I have when I'm thinking about if it does go to a runoff. I mean, the best thing Herschel Walker has on the ballot is the fact that Brian Kemp is leading in the governor's race comfortably, and polls show him consistently over fifty percent. So if he can help pull him over there, that's his that's his best chance. And I think it gets a little riskier if it does go to a runoff because. You went out, you voted for Kemp, you maybe didn't really agree with Herschel Walker on a lot of these things, maybe these scandals are making you question it. Mm -hmm. Do you come out again on December 6th if it's not for Senate majority? That's where Republicans have told me they worry. They think they could get the enthusiasm if it is for the Senate majority. But if it's not, they are really worried about that. I think it is just still they, if they can get their base voters out, then it narrows this. But I, you know, again, I'm with Amy on this. I think just the economy is so it's just superseding everything at this point. And that just seems to be what drive what is driving these last few weeks more than anything. Mm -hmm. You're also looking closely at Arizona Um, from a, a briefing I saw you all gave earlier today, Mark Kelly, Senator out in Arizona. Um, it looks like he may be in trouble. Yeah, so he he was one of their better, I mean, he is one of their better incumbents, and he's run an excellent campaign and the type of campaign that you need to win in a swing state like Arizona. And he's outspending Republicans in total um, two to one. 
you know, the Senate Leadership Fund, the Super PAC backed by McConnell, pulled their money out of this race last month, which was a very telling sign. And we sort of saw a hodgepodge of other groups come in and try to make that up, particularly the Heritage Foundation has a PAC that they've started, the Sentinel Action Fund that has come in. Um, Peter Thiel, who, the billionaire who helped Masters, he, Masters has sort of been his acolyte, helped him in the primary, initially seemed like he wasn't going to get involved in the general despite entreaties from McConnell um, he has now given another five million reportedly to that super PAC who is back on the air and Ke Kelly's ads go much further of course because the candidate dollars the hard dollars they get such a lower rate than the outside money so he is out communicating them but they are just still seeing this tightening and I think it has a lot to do with the governor's race there as well you know, so many of these states like Georgia, like we were talking about, these are sort of working in tandem because you have Carrie Lake, who, yes, she spouts conspiracy theories and is a controversial person, but she had been on local news for 20 years. Mm. She is someone that is still, I think, very you trust your local news anchor, certainly. And I think she has that goodwill still in a way. She's very dynamic at a crowd. And Democrats do not have a, a really strong candidate there. Katie Hobbs, the Secretary of State, has made a lot of missteps, I think, in this race. They've never really sort of been enthused. And so, you know, I would give, we still have that race in toss-up, but the, the momentum certainly seems to be with Lake in that regard. And I think that's helping Masters some. And Masters has also not run a really great campaign. He's another one of sort of these problematic nominees that we see, but he didn't have the same advantages of, despite being problematic like a Dr. Oz who is famous and a Herschel Walker in Georgia that's a football star, he really was more unknown. But again, I think it just comes down to that question. They are really painting uh, Kelly as so tied to Biden yeah. and it's, it's that, are you better off than you were before? And that there's people in Arizona that for that the answer, the answer is no. We had Speaker Pelosi on Face the Nation last Sunday, and she was really, you know, putting an optimistic spin on things, saying that this is like the Olympics, you know, and that this is really the final stretch and that Democrats can still pull this off. Um, I mean, she's clearly focused on, on the House. What are you all thinking there? Um, how much of what she is arguing is is just wishful thinking? Yeah, I mean, she has a very challenging job. And every year, you know, when you're the party that is in charge and it's a midterm election and you have to defend your majority in the House, you are going up against history and you are going with incredible headwinds. Mm -hmm. um, and holding on is hard to do when you only have a five-seat majority. Now, the one thing that Pelosi does and Democrats do have going for them is a couple of things. Well, maybe a couple things going for them. One, they lost some of their most vulnerable incumbents last election. Okay. So they don't have as many seats that are sort of low hanging fruit for Democrats to pick off. The other is just structurally, it, we just don't have that many swing districts anymore, Margaret. You know, we don't have a hundred races where you could look at that uh, seat and say, boy, this is a really competitive state where, you know, it was 50-50 at the presidential level. So this is the kind of race that could uh, be hard for Democrats to hold on to. What is become really apparent in the last couple of weeks, and which is really quite interesting, my colleague Dave Wasserman has written about this, is that 
some of the biggest challenges for Democrats are not coming in red states or Mm -hmm. purple states, but in blue ones. And this goes back to the abortion question. If you look at the states where the issue of abortion is front and center in large part because the decisions made by the state legislature there or the governor to veto or okay that decision or where in Michigan, for example, there's a ballot initiative. That's the kind of place where um, I think abortion can take an outsized role over the other things we were talking about, right? The economy, right direction, wrong track. But in some of these blue states, Oregon, or New York, or California, or even Nevada, where Mm -hmm. either the states have codified um, abortion access into their constitutions, or where voters just know this isn't a place we're going to have to worry about restrictive abortion laws. It's harder to get people motivated on that issue. And so we're seeing Democrats really struggle in those states because they don't have that sort of accelerant um, like they do in, say, a Michigan or a Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. Um, exactly. Uh, I mean, you see that in a number of places. But sp- the speaker, when we were going back and forth on messaging and had they not emphasized the economy enough, I mean, to be very honest, what is it that they can emphasize? That's right. I um, mean, I've, I've said that the, the other day. It's like, look, you're the party in charge. There's 8% inflation. Um, majorities of Americans think that we're in a recession. Mm-hmm. There's not much you can do to message your way out of right. it. You can't make people who think the economy is not doing well think it is doing well or that the price of groceries isn't pinching their wallet, right? Mm -hmm. So you don't have much of a choice there. Now, what you can do when you're the party in charge is either say, one, here are the ways we're trying to fix it, which I know they're talking about with, you know, we're capping the cost of prescription drugs or, um, you know, we're we're doing as much as we can to to try to lessen your day-to-day costs. But that's, again, when people's day-to-day costs are literally you know, an extra $50 at the grocery store every week, mm-hmm. talking about prescription drugs just doesn't resonate. Right. right? Um, especially because the prescription drug element hasn't even gone into effect yet. Right. It won't until, what, 2023? Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's uh, the first. The other thing is, so if you're the party in charge, what do you do when the economy is bad and people blame you? Well, you either, A, try to change the subject, which is right. where we get to abortion and Trump, or two, say the other side's going to make it worse, right? Yeah, it may be bad now, but these guys are going to make it worse, which is why you're hearing the president and many candidates in their advertising and in their last minute sort of sell to voters Talk about Republicans wanting to cut Social Security and Medicare, things that I know you've talked to Senator Rick Scott about when he's been on your show. Mm-hmm. You know, he put he put this economic plan forward, uh, which includes things like reevaluating, he said, every federal program every five years. But, but exactly it, on that point, when he put yeah. forward an affirmative case for what he actually wanted to do, that turned out to be a negative in some ways for the party. Well, the, the Republicans were like, I'm sorry, um, who's this Rick Scott person? I do not know of him. I don't want to, <laughs> we don't, we don't want to talk about that. Let's just talk about, uh, let's just talk about the Democrats. But I also think it's really hard for Democrats to make this theoretical framework, right, which is what Rick Scott put forward, of a not particularly right. well-known senator from Florida 
as a as a real you know yeah threat to to voters it's it's very theoretical um versus if indeed the day after the election let's say that republicans did vote on this well okay then we can see that as an issue in 2024 but for now it's very theoretical the cost of gas is not theoretical and neither is your rent right no great points um our numbers have and we'll have an updated estimate on sunday's program but that republicans will take the house with a 224 seat majority um where are you all in those estimates yeah, that is, we're in um, somewhere between the 15 and 25 range. Mm-hmm. So where would that be? I can't do the math in my head. It would be bigger than 224. Yeah. No, it would be right in that range. So they're at like 213 right now. Yeah, a little bit higher than that. But that's, you know, um, I think, it, here's the other thing we know, Margaret, from the just looking at past year elections and the Cook Political Report, how we've um, uh, seen these races, the, the very closest races go at the very end. If you go back, I think we went back four or five cycles, the closest races for the House and the Senate end up breaking overwhelmingly one way, right? It's, it's You don't see um, the race, let's say we have, for example, 40 competitive races for the House, they don't break 2020 or even, you know, where one side wins two more seats than the other. It usually breaks 60 or 70 percent, sometimes even more, to one side. And the Senate has been similar. Um, the Senate's a little different in that, you know, these are it's easier to have mm-hmm. uh, individuals become the focal point. The House gets caught up more in the mood. Um, but. Usually, as I said, usually we're going to see a um, a swing, um, and that 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 to me suggests we could see Republicans on the higher end of the range than not. Jess, what are you focused on in these closing weeks? So, where these toss up races are going, if any are moving. You know, we was we talked about earlier. We moved to Arizona. We could still move uh, one or so more, and you know, we're constantly talking with campaigns and um, other people who are polling. You know, we haven't gotten a lot of public polling actually this year. There's been far fewer, and I think, um, but we but we talk with a lot of sources that are are seeing things internally, and that can that certainly influences our ratings. You know, I'm looking to some of these races on the margin that could tell us okay, maybe Democrats are having a bit of a better night. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, North Carolina and Ohio will be sort of early closing ones on the East coast. And, you know, again, Republicans have come really close. I think that, you know, in Ohio, particularly Tim Ryan has run a near perfect race and Republicans have had to completely bail out JD Vance, but in a, state that Trump won by eight points and one where Governor DeWine is leading by double digits, 20 points in some polls. I think, you know, we and Amy talks about this a lot, sort of looking at the vote share of where candidates are getting. 
um, that ultimately there is a ceiling in some of these redder states. You know, he's been around 45, 46. That may be the maximum that especially in a cycle like this that a Democrat can get in states. And then, you know, sort of feels like it's been under the radar, the North Carolina Senate race. Now, yeah. the North Carolina Senate races recently have sort of felt like, you know, Charlie in the football, um, <laughs> Charlie Brown in the football, because they've come so close in many instances, but they haven't won one since 2008, so 14 years. Um, and they have a good candidate in Sherry Beasley. She is, you know, vying to be a, just the third African-American woman in the Senate. And Ted Budd, a congressman there, I mean, he's he's sort of been more of a generic Republican. There hasn't been issues with him necessarily. And I think that that just makes it sort of a gen- more generic type race. And, of course, Trump won in North Carolina. And again, in this environment, I, I think that she can get sort of where about where Ryan is, but that we see undecided at this point are looking more like they are breaking toward Republicans. Yeah. Um, Joel Payne, who is a Democratic strategist who works for CBS News, told um, our team here on Face the Nation last week that Tim Ryan should get a Profile and Courage Award for the way he's run his campaign because he's forcing <laughs> Republicans to spend money on that race, but isn't predicting that it'll actually result in a win. Um, I thought yeah, that was it's also that is it's also a good reminder, Margaret and and Jess has written about this too about you know it, the fact that you had so many Republicans decide to call it quits this year. Rob Portman in Ohio had he run for re-election, this wouldn't even be a race. We wouldn't mm-hmm. be talking about this. Or in Pennsylvania, had Pat Toomey not retired, the Republican senator there, that wouldn't be much of a race. Or in North Carolina, which Jess just talked about. That wouldn't be a race either. And I think many of those members we know are leaving in part because the Senate that they once knew or the Washington they knew, they were the pre-Trump era. Some of them were even the pre-Tea Party era. That's just not here anymore. And, um, you know, the, the kinds of people we've been seeing it now really accelerating during the Trump era, but the kinds of Republicans that were, you know, a little more of the sort of old style establishment, grew up in a very different kind of politics, um, very few of them are left. And um, that not o- that obviously gave Democrats some opportunities here okay. in the Senate to win some races, but I think more important, it is going to change the, the sort of makeup, the kind of the way that the Senate operates and the Senate for so long has been right the cooling saucer. Right. We don't act like that, you know, overheated house. Uh, the Senate's starting to look and act a lot more like the House. Than right. Well, and Republicans had a lot of recruiting missteps. I mean, you know, they really expected Kristen Nunu in New Hampshire to challenge Maggie Hassan. That's a race that I think uh, would have been one of the most competitive races and really put Hassan um, on the defense. Uh, He did not do that uh, to the great dismay of McConnell and other people. And she's running against a weaker candidate now, Don Balduck, who is not who Republicans wanted in that race. And again, you know, those retirements that Amy was mentioning, they are just so key to me because, and the fact that you look at the people that are leaving, I mean, for for the ages they are, Pat Toomey and Rob Portman, they're spring chickens compared to some of the other people. So it's not <laughs> like you know they're 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 leaving because their time is done. These are people that are sort of frustrated with the direction of the party, 
And Trump has endorsed many of these candidates in races that were the weaker nominee. And, you know, his goal is mashing up against McConnell's. McConnell's is very clearly to win back the Senate majority. Trump wants candidates in there that are going to be loyal to him. Even if you look at it, any political strategist would tell you that a different type of candidate in many of these places would have been more competitive and would have helped Trump in the long run. That's not how he looks at things, of course. Okay. Um, I want to also ask you about uh, one state we haven't talked about yet. That's Nevada. That seems like it's going to be a very interesting race and kind of hard to judge Mm -hmm. which way it's going to break, at least early on in the night, certainly. Um, What are your predictions there? I've long thought that Nevada is the seat most likely to flip, that Catherine Cortez Masto is in the most danger. And even though it's a state that went, you know, about two and a half points for Biden, he had more of a cushion than he did in Georgia and in Arizona. But it's a very transient state. About half of all voters from 2016. This is a state that has been hit really hard by the pandemic when your economy is driven so much by tourism and COVID restrictions really put a damper on that. And again, this is a place where Republicans have a more generic type nominee, Adam Laxalt, former attorney general. His grandfather was both a senator and governor. And so he has a name there in the state. And, you know, there's also the Reed machine there is what sort of propelled Democrats so much. Well, the former Senate Mm -hmm. majority leader passed away and the state party was taken over by Bernie Sanders acolytes. So you have these sort of, uh, you know, the Reed people trying to run sort of a shadow state party through Washoe and different things. And, Mm -hmm. um, it, it, there's just it's not in the same way that they've been able to sort of run uh, to, to eke out races. I think there's just a lot of questions um, in Nevada, and I think it sort of gets falsely labeled a blue state sometimes, but it's not. It's very a very very purple state, and it's one that we have seen rep- tilt in a way to Republicans sometimes in midterm elections. Um, ladies, it's been really good to talk to you both, Amy and Jessica. Um, Jessica, good to talk to you for the first yes, time. Yes, thank you. Yes. <laughs> and Amy, I know we'll be talking to you this Sunday as well. So That's right. Look forward to it. Yeah, lots to dig into. Until next time, thank you all for listening. Some puzzles are hard to solve. Others are hard to prove. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. Access episodes early and ad-free with 48 Hours Plus on Apple Podcasts. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary and it's not boring. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. I'm going to be your financial coach, someone who brings common sense and an insider's perspective on how to manage your money and your emotions. And I promise we are going to have a little bit of fun along the way. Have a question from retirement to career changes to college funding? Just send us an email at askjill at jillonmoney.com. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app. 
It was the biggest scandal in pop music. The stars of Milli Vanilli, the Grammy-winning multi-platinum R&B phenomenon, were exposed as frauds, but none of this was their idea. So whose idea was it? Enter German music producer Frank Farian. He saw the success of acts like Michael Jackson and Prince, and he wanted in, no matter the cost. So he devised the perfect pop heist, two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? They couldn't sing. But Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies and takes a never-before-heard look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when the truth came out, Rob and Fab were the only ones who got burned. Looking back now, it's hard not to wonder, why did everyone blame them and not the man pulling the strings? Follow Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus.